We've been marching our way through the Hebrew Scriptures since uh, October of 2003. And here we are in Malachi. And it is the last recorded word from God to man before Christ was born in Bethlehem. And so the message is very timely this month. We are on the run-up to Christmas. Right in that uh, coming pretty quick, I think three weeks from Thursday is, uh, is Christmas Day. And the celebration by so many around the world of the, of the birth of Christ. Well, before that happened, 400 years before that happened, the Lord sent a messenger, spoke through a messenger by the name of Malachi. Let's look at this. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says we've been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this. And you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Father, we pray first and foremost that your Holy Spirit would instruct and teach us. We pray, Father, that you will speak your word of truth into open and receptive hearts. And that secondarily, my prayer, Lord, is that you would open up our hearts, that we would be Uh, receptive, that we would be willing to hear the truth, even where the truth is difficult. I ask, Lord, that you would speak plain words to us this morning so we can understand your heart, your desire, and your plan. And in understanding, Lord, that we might glorify our God. In Jesus' name, Amen. The message of Malachi. Malachi, by name and by calling, is a messenger. His name means my messenger. From the word in the Hebrew, malach, which is the word translated often angel in the Hebrew scriptures. Malach, or the malachim, would be angels. It simply means messenger. Malachi's name, my messenger. But it's not always easy to be the messenger. Especially if you're the bearer of difficult news. Now, we're told that Shakespeare expressed this in 1607 in his play, Antony and Cleopatra. When a herald reports to Cleopatra that Mark Antony had married Octavia, sister to Octavius Caesar, instead of Cleopatra, she strikes the messenger. She threatens him, and he cries out, Gracious madam, I that do bring the news, made not the match. Don't shoot the messenger, is what he's saying. She draws a knife in the play, and he exits stage left. In Shakespeare's Henry VIII, 1623, this line is spoken, the first bringer of unwelcome news hath but a losing office, and his tongue sounds ever after like a sullen bell. 2,000 years before that, The playwright Sophocles in 442 B.C. wrote the play Antigone. In that play, a nervous sentry has to bring bad news to the king. And so he begins by saying, None love the messenger who brings bad news. And that's kind of the background of where this phrase comes from. The idea of don't shoot the messenger or don't kill the messenger. Well, in our case, for our study, our purposes this morning, Malachi is the messenger. He heralds good news, or at least he heralds the herald of good news. But along with that, this is one of the more convicting books of Scripture, as you will see. The Lord gets right down to it. I prayed a moment ago that he would speak plain words. Well, this is a plain spoken book. And I find the relevance of it absolutely striking. 
Not just that we happen to be on the edge of December coming up to the Christmas holidays and so Malachi, 400 years before the birth of Christ. That's, that's interesting. But what's interesting to me mostly is that this message came to Malachi, through Malachi, to the people of Israel at the time when their building project was complete. At a time when the temple had been finished, standing now for roughly a century. The walls around Jerusalem completely restored. The building on Troxel Road, done. (laughs) And that's when the apathy kicked in. The vision was over. You know, the drive for all those years, done, finished, complete, we're here now. And it didn't take long for the people of Israel to sink into the doldrums and to really stop caring. Oh, they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. The sacrifices were brought. The temple was functioning to a degree. The people went up to Jerusalem to worship on occasion. There was no idolatry in the land. That was completely washed out. So so that's a good thing. And on the outside, by all outward appearances, you might be tempted to say, hey, the people of Israel have come back and they're doing well now. Boy. Apathy. You know, with the rapid-fire pace of today's social media, you might say, don't shoot the instant messenger. Because God instantly jumps on this issue. I love that about the Father. He doesn't wait around. He doesn't let them wallow in their sin. He brings it to them. He explains to them what's going on. He calls them out on it. And it's the last message that He will give His people for 400 years. It's not as if He hadn't said enough. 39 books in the Hebrew Scriptures, written over a 1,000 years. 1,500 years, actually. Words of love. Words of compassion. Words of invitation. Words of the Lord saying, come to me, walk with me, be with me. It's my desire. I want you to be my people. And then 400 years of silence that they might consider what it is that God had said. He sends Malachi to remind his people of the core message. Now don't miss this. The core message that the heart of God had not changed. The people themselves, yes, they had changed. They had been through dramatic cultural upheaval. But God's truth had not changed. It remained unaltered. And that's the way it is with God's Word. It is never changing. We change all the time. Culture is in a constant ebb and flow. The Word of God is not. You can shoot the messenger. You can gun down the go-between. You can even try to halt the herald. But it cannot be done. You cannot stop the forward march of the unchanging, unalterable Word of God. And I'll tell you what, it brings me great comfort. Because whether it's in this society or any other across the past 6,000 years, God's Word is straight and true and unchanging. He says, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. Isaiah 55, 11. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. My, my friend and I, Jeff, we were talking about this just yesterday about how churches keep going through so many changes. And, and isn't it interesting, if you've been around, especially in the, the church kind of circle for an amount of time, you've seen this. Just in my lifetime, we saw the seeker-driven church. The Willow Creek Community Church really kind of spawned that movement within the church of, of seeker-driven, being open to the, the seeker and, and heading that direction. And then after that, the purpose-driven church. Saddleback Church down in Southern California. Rick Warren's message. The purpose-driven church. Every church needs five purposes and here they are. And off the church went. And some stayed with the Willow Creek seeker-driven model. Others now jumped on the bandwagon with the purpose-driven church model. And then along came the missional church model. And so there are churches chasing after the missional church. And you start to wonder, well, which one's right? My opinion Those movements come and go and come and go and they have for thousands of years. The only thing we know is consistent that stays true that is never changing is God's Word. And how do we as a church, now that we're in this new structure, now that things are are changing, oh, we've got ministries popping up, 
We've got people being called and anointed to do things. They're saying, wow, the Lord wants me to do this. I'm like, go for it. That's cool. That's great. And in fact, if you come to me and say, hey, Rick, I have a ministry idea. I'll say, hey, get to it. God bless you. How can we help you? <laughs> Don't come to me and say, Rick, I've got a great ministry idea for you to undertake. Because I've already got a full plate. <laughs> but all these things going on, how will the Bridge Christian Fellowship maintain its core? How will we maintain our, our center? Hey, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not change. Amen. And as long as this fellowship is about the preaching of the gospel, as long as we remain, 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 we remain true to the word of God, as long as we are listening to the spirit of our Father, then we have nothing to be concerned about. We stick to the core. From Moses to Malachi to Matthew, the core is the same. From Genesis to Revelation, the message is the same. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that speaks to every individual person on the planet today. If you're not a believer, if not a Christian this morning, God is speaking that word to you right now. And I'll come back to that. But His Word is wholly consistent and unalterable ballast in the storm of culture. An anchor in a world in upheaval. Malachi is sent into a situation where, yes, the people are back in the land, things have settled out, but now there's an apathy, and it's a dangerous apathy that has grown in among the people. Let's look at this, verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. And that tells us a few things right up front. It's an oracle, a Massah in the Hebrew. It's a burden. There's a heaviness on God's heart as he sends the prophet Malachi. As the prophet goes now to the people. It's a burden for the Lord. And the burden is for Israel. Anytime you see that word Massah, you know the message is going to bear a serious weight. And Malachi does. Don't shoot the messenger. (laughs) It's the only book that ends with the threat of a curse. Look at the very end. Malachi chapter 4 verse 6. Speaking of Elijah the prophet, and we'll get to that and explain that in a week or two. But verse 6 says, He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that, or, or, I will not come and smite the land with a curse. The last word of the Old Testament, curse. I love to contrast that with the last word of the New Testament, Revelation 22.21, which says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all. Amen. One book ends with a curse. The other ends with grace. The law can only bring a curse. Only through Jesus can we find grace. And that's why He came. And so, though Malachi is a burden, you need to understand, it comes from the grace of God. It comes from a place of deep, deep love. It is the most immediately personal and directly conversational of any of the 12 minor prophets. In fact, we're about to really shift gears here in the way the Word of God is being brought. It's conversational in that 55 verses in this book, 47 of them are spoken directly by God to the people. It's the largest percentage of verses in any given book in the Bible of God speaking directly to His people. It's a conversational book. It shifts dramatically from the, from the future revelations of Zechariah. Wow, what a book that was. I mean, we just spent the last several weeks in Zechariah, and I was blown away. I love books like Zechariah because of the pictures and the, the symbols and the prophecies, just rich and huge, and you want to figure it out. You don't have to figure out anything in Malachi. Not a thing. God just speaks straight and true. There are no visions. There are no great revelations. Well, there's one. Just one revelation in the entire book of Malachi. The rest of it is God speaking to His people in a very direct message. This is not a book of visions. No, this is a final communication. The messenger himself bringing this communication of Malachi. We know nothing. He's one of uh, a couple of others, three all together among the so-called minor prophets. We don't know anything about them. Obadiah, we don't know anything about that man. 
Habakkuk, we don't know. And Malachi. All we get of those three is the name. Obadiah was a very common name. Habakkuk was not as common, but was still a a used name in Israel. So we come to Malachi, and there are those who say, well, all it says is the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, through his messenger. So perhaps there really wasn't a Malachi. Not by name. Perhaps it was, some say, Ezra. In fact, there's an older Jewish writing, a a Targum, that says uh, that that guesses that Ezra was the one who wrote Malachi, but took the pen name or the pseudonym of Malachi. That would have placed it in the wrong time. Others say, well, maybe someone else came along and just used that as a pseudonym. Thing is, not a single Hebrew book of prophecy ever came down to us anonymously. If Malachi is an anonymous writer, then he's the only one. And I, for one, don't believe he was. I I think Malachi was his name. That we are receiving a prophecy because the Lord always chooses a man and then speaks through that man as he's done consistently throughout the other 39 books of the Hebrew Scriptures. This book is legitimized in the New Testament. Directly quoted four times. And if you go through, you can find another at least 20, if not more, allusions in the New Testament Scriptures back to Malachi, back to the things that God spoke to His people in and through this final prophet. But the greatest contribution of Malachi is the one new revelation that we get. Not even all that new, because there were hints at it through Isaiah. But the declaration comes of another messenger the forerunner of Messiah. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. I'm going to send my messenger to clear the way. Actually, chapter 3, verse 1 speaks of two messengers, but I don't want to get there yet. We'll talk about that maybe next week. But Jesus, quoting this verse, said in Matthew 11, verse 10, This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before me. It's quoted again in Mark chapter 1, verse 2. Again in Luke chapter 7, verse 27. Those three times, all quoting this verse, speaking of John the Baptist. My messenger. And you know the story. John came on the scene and began to prepare the way for Messiah to come. Saying, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And right on his heels came Jesus. And John said, I must decrease that he might increase. John said, behold, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. My messenger, John the Baptist. 400 years after Malachi said... The messenger would come. John shows up on the scene. Now, the fourth quote from Malachi is by the Apostle Paul. Jesus quotes him three times. Then Paul quotes Malachi in Romans chapter 9, verse 13. He refers to Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, where Paul says, Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. We'll get to that in just a minute. But as I said, John arrived 400 years later. Conservative scholars date the book of Malachi at the end of the 5th century B.C. That would be around 420 to 400 B.C. That's when we believe the book was written. Now, you might say, well, how do we know? If we don't even know who Malachi was, all we get is his name. How do we know when the book was written? How do we know where to lay this in Scripture? Let me give you three ways that we know. First of all, the temple of the Lord is in play. During the writing, during the prophecies of Malachi, we know the temple is standing. Malachi refers a number of times to the priests doing their priestly services and offerings in the temple. So we know the temple was standing at that time. Now someone might say, well, couldn't it have been the first temple? Which would make Malachi's book way back before 586 B.C., much earlier on, as opposed to this late dating. How do you know it's the second temple? Here's how. Secondly, not only is the temple of the Lord in play, but the title of the ruler of Israel is governor. 
The title is governor, not king. When Malachi prophesies, you'll see this in chapter 1, verse 8. The word governor is used of the leader of the people. It's the Hebrew word pachah, and it means a governor or an administrator. These are not the days of a king. So we know two things, and this helps us place it pretty quickly. We know the temple is standing, and we know there is no king but a governor. That means it has to be a post-exilic book. Post-exilic after the exile to Babylon. After that 586 tragedy. After they come back. After they rebuild the temple. And that already forces us all the way into the 5th century. But there's another thing that even helps us dial it down to a more specific time frame. A time frame that I would say has to be after about 444 B.C. Which is why, again, we place it closer to 400 And that is that the governor who was most likely in play at the time was another name with which you may be familiar. A man by the name of Nehemiah. Nehemiah returned with a group of of exiles in 444. The temple was built and he began the work of the building of the wall around Jerusalem. Well, how do we know that Malachi was on the scene with Nehemiah? Because, number three, the transgressions of the people. The temple is in play. The title is governor. Nehemiah called himself governor, by the way. Nehemiah 5.14 says, From the day that I was appointed to be their governor, their pachah, in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food. So he said, I, I was the governor. Nehemiah is the governor. And Malachi prophesies at the time of the second temple and the governor. And what we see most compellingly throughout this book, this short four chapters, is the transgressions of the people. What God addresses through Malachi to his people in this day are the exact same things Nehemiah was having to address to the people in his day. I mean precisely. Keep your finger there in Malachi 1 and go all the way back to Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Had left about halfway back into your Old Testaments. Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah 13. Look at about verse 29. Now we're going to look at these things specifically as we get deeper into the book this Wednesday night and, and the following Wednesday. But there are three standout transgressions, three issues, three sins of the people of Israel that God is coming down through Malachi, coming down on them about. He is concerned greatly about it. And the first one is a crooked priesthood. These are the days of a crooked priesthood. Look at verse 29 of Nehemiah chapter 13. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood, the covenant of the priesthood, and the Levites. Now that's Nehemiah speaking. He's saying the priesthood is defiled. You're going to hear the Lord go after that. And deal with the fact that it is truly crooked at this time. Amazing. That the priesthood already would have fallen. Within a hundred years of the building of the second temple, the priesthood would already be messed up. And by the time Jesus arrives, the priesthood will have split, will have divided into two contentious groups. You remember their names? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. Who were not even groups in the days of Nehemiah, but would begin to line up and divide against each other. Furthermore, not only do we see this crooked priesthood, but if you go back to verse 23 of Nehemiah 13, Nehemiah writes, In those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod and Ammon and Moab. As for their children, half spoke the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah. But the language of his own people. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair. Nehemiah wasn't messing around. And made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourself. The second problem at this time, a corruption of marriage. A crooked priesthood and a corruption of marriage. And here's where... The messenger is at risk of being shot. Because Malachi comes along and gives the strongest word of God about marriage of any of the prophets. 
Hosea uses marriage as a beautiful example. You remember that? Hosea and his wife Gomer and how she's a, a whoring wife, but Hosea goes after her time and time again, portraying God and his love for his people, Israel, with whom he would be married. And we come along now to Malachi, and God begins to talk in chapter 2, specifically around verses 14 and 15 of Malachi, begins to talk about marriage and about how the people are corrupting marriage. Malachi will reveal to us God's true feelings about both marriage and divorce, which is an example, as I said, of the relationship that God wants with His people. Do you understand that? I'm just starting to figure this out. I'm a little slow on the uptake. I get that. But just starting to realize that our marriages are far bigger than us. That the whole reason God gave marriage to man and to woman, to a husband and a wife, to leave father and mother and, and cleave unto each other, the whole purpose is it stands as a picture of Christ and the church. And Paul points that out in Ephesians chapter 5. If you're having marital struggles right now, why don't you think about that and chew on that a little bit and recognize that what your marriage goes through and how you stay faithful and maintain, it portrays Christ in the church. And when we divide and when we are unfaithful, we mess up the picture that God intended us to see. How simple would it be if marriages stayed strong and the Lord said, hey, you see how you are in your marriage? That's what I want. We would understand that. Malachi actually tells us that God hates divorce. Now, listen, for those of you who are divorced or who have gone through a divorce, I'm not sitting up here in judgment of you. There's plenty of sin to go around in this room, right? But I am saying that we need to understand that we fail where God remains true. Where God is faithful, we're faithless. And so, a corruption of marriage is going on. The priesthood is crooked. And number three, the people were coveting their money. I really shouldn't even say it that way. The people were coveting God's money. Well, what's God's money? Look at chapter 13, back a little earlier, verse 10. I also discovered, writes Nehemiah, that the portions of the Levites had not been given them, so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and I said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts, a coveting of money. The people had gotten to the point where their gifts, their tithes, and their offerings were nil. It was so bad, according to Nehemiah, that the priests couldn't afford to be priests. So they went back to work in the field. And so the temple was in disuse. Within the first century of the rebuilding, of the regathering of the people back in the land. And already this is going on. And it was a coveting of God's money. Again, what is God's money? All of it. All of it. Not 10%. Not 5%. Not what you or I decide we should drop in the box. That's not God's money. God's money is all of it. And he says to you, he says to me, hey, look, let's make a deal. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to give you income. And why don't you keep 90%? And then tithe, 10%, that's what tithing means. Tithe, give 10% to me. Why, Lord? You need my 10%? No. You need to give me the 10%. Because it forces faith. It draws out faith. It reminds you constantly, every time you give, every time you tithe, it reminds you, God is the one who's loaning you the 90% that you're living on. That's, that's kind of the principle of tithing. And I won't belabor that point. Well, maybe belabor that. I won't tell you when, because no one will come. <laughs> the whole issue of money. The people were coveting it. They were holding on to it. They really thought it was theirs to do with as they pleased. And so, ministry began to fail. And that's what happens. Malachi says it's not the Levites in chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. 
Malachi says it's not the Levites you're ripping off. God says it's me. You're not withholding the money from the priesthood. You're withholding the money from me. You're robbing me, he says. All that to say the people may have been free from idolatry outwardly. Yes, they were back in the land. But inwardly, there was a hardening taking place. Things were growing callous. Things were growing religious. Things were growing monotonous. And I'll tell you, as a pastor, it can happen to me. I was talking to the Lord just driving over here this morning. And it struck me, just in thinking about what we were going to talk about, how simple it is, how easy it is for me in my daily pastoral life to get into the groove of I go in, I study the Word, I deal with some people, I teach the Word, I go in, I study the Word, deal with some people, teach the Word, and that's what I do. And around and around we go, and there's no heart, and there's no passion, and there's no love there. And, and my prayer is, God, don't ever let me get there. Don't let me be one of those who's crooked in my priesthood. Or corrupt in my marriage or coveting of your money, Lord. Don't let me be one. Don't let me become a Pharisee or a Sadducee. Because just 400 years later, we see the end result of this behavior, of this attitude among the people. In Matthew 23, 27, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful. You dress up well. But on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So outwardly you appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And my friends, that hardening did not start in Jesus' day. It started four to five hundred years earlier. And Malachi calls it out. And then God steps back for four hundred and says, I'm going to let you think about this. I'm going to let you work this out. You have my word. Now you might say, after all that they've been through with the Lord, how can this be? How can the people of Israel have gotten into this place of, of crooked priesthood and a corrupt corruption of marriage and coveting their money? How did they get into these, these pretty serious inward sins? How is the right word? How indeed? How is a word that God calls from the heart of the Jewish people eight times in the book of Malachi? What are you talking about? The word is ma in the Hebrew. Sounds a lot like meh, which I've noticed our younger people use a lot today. I had to look that up. What does that mean? Meh. It means meh. (laughs) Didn't take me long to figure it out. Meh. So parents, if, you're, if you say, hey, I want you to run, take out the trash, and your son or your daughter goes, meh, you go, no, 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 I know what that means. <laughs> and I know you're blowing me off right now. Gang, ma in the Hebrew, the way it's used as a preposition eight times in this book, it has a ring of self-defense. Almost a self-justification, a blasé belligerence to the Lord. And like I said, God's the one doing the talking, but He calls them on what they're saying in their hearts. You know, God knows, right? He knows what's going on in my heart. And I may not even answer Him outwardly. When He says, Rick, Rick, I want you to do this in your life. I don't have to outwardly go, meh. I can inwardly go, Whatever. And the Jewish people were doing this very thing. Look at this, eight times in verse 2. God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, Ma. How? How have you loved us? God gives a challenge. God seeks to convict. And the Jewish people reply with, How? Self-defense. Down in verse 6. A son honors, honors his father, a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise his name? But you say, Meh. How? How have we despised your name? Come on. We're here, right? We did an extra song of worship this morning, Lord. I took communion. I even bowed extra low so people could see how holy I was. How have we despised your name? The third one is right in the next verse. Verse 7, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how? How have we defiled you? 
Down in chapter 2, verse 13, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? The word for there is actually ma. How? Why? What's the deal? On down in verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Boy, I don't want to ever do that. You know it's bad when you're praying and the Lord is falling asleep. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how? How have we wearied Him? Down in chapter 3, verse 7. God says, from the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how? How shall we return to you? You know what they're saying? It's like sitting in a service, and God is calling our hearts to repentance, and calling us to turn to Him. And we're like, what do you mean return to you? We're already here. We're doing all the stuff. Lord, I am in the office at 8 o'clock Tuesday morning. I'm there. I'm at the church. Which is really not the church, you know. You're the church. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm where I'm supposed to be. Here I am, Lord. What do you mean return to you? And they're defending themselves and their position before the Lord. The seventh one, will a man rob God? Verse 8 of chapter 3. Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Come on. Does it really matter what I give? The church is doing fine. I need the money over here. It's more important in my life that I, that I, I, I need to do it here. I need to give to, to starving children. Mine. How have we robbed you? And he says, in tithes and offerings. Verse 13, the eighth and final time, your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? And Feinberg says, they were insensible to the great love God displayed toward them. They were unaware of the enormity of their departure from the will and the way of the Lord. They lacked reverence for the Lord and actually despised Him. They were so lacking in spiritual perception that when their deeds were pointed out to them, they saw no harm in them. And that rattled my cage. Is there anything in your life that you know in your soul, you know in your head at least, probably really not what God wants you to do, but your attitude toward it is, no harm, no foul. It's not that big a deal. I I, I know God would rather I not do this, but no biggie. Right? I, I don't see the harm in this. That's a dangerous place to be. And you know, the reality is the Jewish people did not shoot the messenger Malachi. They didn't care enough. They were too apathetic even to, to pick up anything but a kind of a lame, lackadaisical challenge for every divine charge. A defensive challenge. How? Why? What? And that is revealing. Because you all well know, and you parents especially get this, defensiveness betrays rebellion. When my kids are defensive, I know something's up. When I'm defensive, that's a good measure. When you find yourself defending what you're doing, whether to another believer or before the Lord, you find yourself taking a defensive posture, chances are there's rebellion right behind it. And it's a dangerous place to be. That kind of mindset... Lacking a, a, a warm, passionate love for the Lord is a tragically perfect example in Israel of a last day's attitude. And here's how Paul described it. 2 Timothy 3.1 Realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self. Lovers of money. Down in verse 4 of 2 Timothy 3, he says, they will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And there's the danger. 
Because if we become defensive, if we become careless, if we settle in apathetically, you know, hey, all, all that God really wanted to do with the bridge, He's done. So now we just get to ride it out until Jesus comes. Wrong. Because if we settle into that, we lose slowly, bit by bit, our love for the Father. And we end up just loving, oh, I don't know, self, money, pleasure, rather than loving God. There's a form of godliness there. We can look godly to this community. On this island, the Bridge Fellowship can look like a godly place. We can dress it up. I've had plenty of training in that. But there's no power in it. And see, the place where the power is, is where the love is. When I am in the love relationship with God, when there is passion flowing from the Spirit to my heart, that's where there's power. That's where the ability to do what God wants done begins to take place. And by the way, it's what I see going on right now in this fellowship. A love for God that is drawing people into ministry. And it's beautiful. But what is it that keeps a man or a woman from going down that religious, hard pan road? And it's very simple. The love of God. Knowing the love of God. I find it interesting that as hard a message as Malachi is about to bring, the first four words out of the Lord's mouth through His messenger are, I have loved you. I have loved you. I have loved you. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. And indeed, he has. Now, in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, Walverd, uh, in that commentary, great commentary, by the way, to have on your shelf if you want some help in Bible study. The Bible Knowledge Commentary. They write, People who read these verses today may feel a little uncomfortable. And yet, somewhat fascinated, like one who is in the presence of an intensely personal conversation between two parties who have long known each other. And I think that's a great way to begin the book of Malachi. Start personally. Start recognizing that this is a conversation between the Lord and His people, a love call from the Lord even as His people are in rebellion. It's a very personal thing. It's also deeply theological, and I'll show you that in just a second here. But God doesn't come out of the gate saying, I love you. Note what He says. I have loved you. It's in the perfect tense. G. Campbell Morgan describes it or translates it like this. I have loved you. I do love you. I will love you. When the Lord says, I have loved you, that's what He's saying to Israel. I have, I do, and I will. No question, this is forever. He spoke through Isaiah the prophet, chapter 43, verse 4, Since you are precious in my sight, you are honored, and I love you. I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. And indeed, He would even give His own Son in exchange for the life of Israel and anyone who believes. I have loved you. I do love you. I will love you. And what that speaks is covenant faithfulness. God will remind His people through the book of Malachi seven times He will use the word covenant. Seven times. Seven is not the number of perfection. It's the number of completion. What's happening here is God is coming around and saying, I am completely faithful to you. I am completely in covenant with you. I have not walked away from it. It's very personal. God cares for His people Israel so much. He calls them in the living room as I would one of my kids, sits down with them and says, here are the things I'm seeing going on. Here's what's got to change. Because I love you. Now, here's the theology. And this is where it gets a little tough. So if you've been dozing at all in the whole love section, wake up. Theologically, how can a faithful God of love say He loves the one but hates the other? How can God say that? 
I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. That's not fair. Let me explain. Two things to know. First off, this is about God's choice. This is speaking of God's choice. God loves differently than we love. We typically go straight to phileo, Philadelphia love, brotherly love, kind of brotherly love and affection, or some of the other Greek words for love. We go there. God is immediately and always agape. Unconditional. How? Because love is a choice, and you all know that. Love is a decision you make. It is not a feeling that you have. Our culture teaches that it's a feeling. Oh, I love her. (laughs) God doesn't look at Israel and go, Man, every time I see them, I get butterflies in my stomach and I think I've got the flu. He says, I have loved you. I do love you. I will love you because He has chosen to do so. It is not arbitrary or erratic with God. It is not an emotional thing so much as an elective thing. (laughs) He elected Israel by choice to be His covenant people, not Esau. He elected them before the world was created. He decided, He chose for Israel to be His people. By the way, in my relationship with my wife, let me explain this a little bit. I chose her before she chose me. I know it's a shock to many of you. (laughs) Many of you assume the story goes, Cheryl chased Rick down across the halls of time. She badgered, she bugged, she, you know, kept after him until finally he gave in and said, all right, I'll date. Well, sad to tell you, it's exactly the opposite. (laughs) And I've learned, guys, if you're persistent enough, you can win just about anybody. So, I made the choice. (laughs) I made the choice. But guess what? I chose her, and then she chose me. Now, keep your finger there and jump over to the right, to Romans chapter 9, where Paul explains this, I think, a little better. Romans chapter 9, verse 11. This whole idea of God's choice, God's election, if you've heard that word election, perhaps you've tied it to Calvinism. (laughs) Watch this. This is about God's choice. Romans 9, beginning right around verse 11, speaking, you can go back to verse 10. Not only this, he says, but there was Rebekah. And when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, verse 11, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What does that say? Jacob and Esau, neither one had anything to do with God's choice. God didn't choose Jacob because Jacob was such a good guy. He wasn't. He was a heel catcher. He was a schemer. He was a liar. He was not the epic guy that you'd look and go, Oh, Jacob, Jacob, he's our man. But God chose him before he could even do anything to prove that that was a good choice. God also chose that Esau was going to serve, the, the, the older was going to serve the younger. That he would love Jacob, but he would hate Esau. More on that in a second, but if you hear that, you think, that, that's still not fair. That doesn't work for me. God loves one, and he hates the other. That's completely unfair. Look at the next verse. Paul anticipated your thought. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. God's response. There's no injustice. Paul's response. If you're thinking this isn't fair, you don't understand the heart of God. Because God is completely fair. God is 100% just. So we're misunderstanding something if that's our reaction. Going on, verse 15, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And again, we might go... How is that fair? Verse 16, listen, don't miss this. It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Now what does that tell you? 
it tells us that your salvation, my eternal salvation, does not depend on me. It depends on His choice. It depends on the fact that God has chosen me. Oh, okay, now you're sounding like a Calvinist, Rick. Alright? I'm not. Because I never said that I had no choice in the matter myself. What I said was God chose me. He chose me, and then I chose Him. Which then verified His choice of me. Do you get that? Divine election simply means this. That God has first chosen those who choose Him. Rick, you're dancing around the words. Look back at Romans 8.28. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Watch this. Don't miss this. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He would be the firstborn among many brethren, and those He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. Calvinism starts one word too late. Huh? Calvinism begins with God predestined, but that's not what happened. What does Paul say? Again, verse 29, he says, those He foreknew, He predestined. Theology, stay with me. Those who He foreknew, He predestined. Those He knew would choose Him, He then predestined to be chosen and called. What that means is God, having all foreknowledge, knowing what you're going to decide, what I'm going to decide, before we decide it, looked across history and said, those who will choose Me, I choose to predestine, to be conformed, to be called, to be My people. He doesn't take away your choice at all. He just knows you're going to make it. He's already aware of it before you've chosen to accept Him or to reject Him. The purpose behind the covenant, the predetermined relationship with Israel, and here's where it's different, because God did predetermine that the Jewish people would be His people. That was not their choice. That was His. And He predetermined that to explain something else to us. Not only God's choice, but secondly, God's faithfulness. Look at verse 4. Malachi 1.4 Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Gang, what Malachi begins with here, with both the love of God for Israel and the hatred of God for Edom, is God's faithfulness. Here's the hard part of the teaching. Faithfulness runs both ways. It is in mercy and it is in judgment. In mercy and judgment. God is faithful both ways. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 Faithful is He who calls you and He will also bring it to pass. And Paul is talking about God's mercy. Talking about His work in our lives. Wonderful. He's faithful. He's going to see me through. But... 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. And I believe, for one, that that faithfulness speaks of the faithfulness to judge. That even for those who are faithless, God has to be faithful to who He is. Completely faithful in mercy and completely faithful in judgment. We live in an era of un. Faithfulness. People unfaithful in friendships. People unfaithful in marriages. In fact, for a marriage to remain solid a long time is bizarre in this culture. It's abnormal. Well, you're still married? Really? The Lord remains true. Let me read you something here. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 7. You don't have to go there. Just read it to you real quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verse 6. God says to Israel, You are a holy people. 
Moses is speaking actually here. You're a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, listen, the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments. But repays those who hate Him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with Him who hates Him, but will repay Him to His face. Now get this. Understand. God must be faithful both in judgment and mercy. But the only time in the entire Hebrew Scriptures, the only time that we're told God hates Esau is at the end. After Esau had already made his own choice. It works both ways. Like I said, if someone is going to choose to give their life to Jesus, God has foreknowledge of that. He knows it's going to happen. And so then He chooses to predestine them to be His people. But if someone is going to choose to reject God in their life, guess what? He knows that too. And He will support that decision. Refusing to take away that free will that He offered us. Esau's at the end. As the Old Testament winds to a close. I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And again, here's where the personal becomes theological, and yet it's still intensely personal. Jacob and Esau, Israel and Edom, are pictures for all of mankind to understand something, and this is it. In Israel, we see God's acceptance of man. We see how God moves to accept and to choose someone. In his relationship with Israel, in his relationship with Esau, we see man's rejection of God. Through Israel, we see divine choice. A wonderful choice that God's choice overcomes flimsy human faithlessness. That in spite of my failings, He can accept me, love me, forgive me, redeem me. His choice. But through Edom, we also see a divine faithfulness that despite His grace, allows people to reject Him. And Esau did. Again, in Israel, we see God's acceptance of man. In Edom, we see man's rejection of God. Why did God hate Esau? I have loved Jacob. I have hated Esau. Why, Lord? Genesis 27.41 says Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand and I will slay my brother Jacob. That was Esau's choice. Esau chose to hate his brother. Esau despised his birthright. Hated his birthright. In fact, you could almost say that everything God gave Esau, he hated. His brother. His firstborn status. His birthright, his blessing, all of it he despised, all of it he could care less about, all of it Esau would look at and just say, meh, I don't care. And down through the centuries, generation after generation of Edom became harder and harder against Israel by their own choice. Edom hated Israel and ultimately Edom rejected God. And he knew they would. And so when God says, I have hated Edom, He is speaking in absolute acceptance of their hatred, their rejection of Him, which He knew was coming. And by the way, I'm just going to throw this in. If you choose to reject Israel as God's chosen people, eventually you will reject God. You'll head down that same road that Edom did. Edom that the Bible says would become a desolation. Have you been in Edom? I have. 
Southern Jordan is a complete wasteland. Absolutely, exactly as described in Scripture, nothing grows there, no one lives there, no one really goes there. When we crossed from the southern border of Israel into Jordan, we had to walk this long. I, I felt like there were snipers that were going to take us all out, you know, because our tour group was so important. But as we walked <laughs> across that long walkway into Jordan, it was like leaving paradise for desolation. I, I kid you not, it was stunning. And God says, that's the outcome. If you hate my people Israel and you reject my plan, my plan for your life. Let's finish this up. Verse 5. Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. When I read that, I got it. Finally, after the whole week. (laughs) Trying to think this through. Here's the point. The Lord will be magnified. Whether through people being saved or people being lost, the Lord will be magnified. He'll be magnified by those who are saved because salvation magnifies God's amazing grace. He will also be magnified by those who are lost because their lostness magnifies His absolute justice. He is completely just and completely fair. He has to be. Don't you want Him to be? Should Jihadi John go unpunished for the people whose heads he's cut off? Should Hitler? Should he get a pass? Anyone for that? I I think Hitler should be in heaven. Anyone? Should Antichrist? Should God just go, ah, well, you know. If the Lord were to turn His eye to sin, if He were not to judge fairly, then He would not be magnified as a just God. But He has to be a just God because He is just by nature. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 tells us He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, Paul says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Now people read that and they say, See, predestination. God predestined us, Paul says. Right there he says it. To adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. Thing is, Paul wasn't talking to Gentiles. He was talking to Jews when he wrote that. You can draw a line in Ephesians chapter 1 between verse 12 and verse 13. The first 12 verses Paul is talking to Israel. He has predestined us, says Paul the Jew. He has chosen us, says Paul of Israel. To the praise of the glory of His grace. Now, through Jesus Christ to Himself, this is all going to be accomplished for Israel. Paul is talking about the chosenness of Israel. He's talking about how God elected them before the foundation of the world to be His chosen people. And if it stopped there, then we all could be a little nervous like the young lady I talked to Wednesday night. Came up to me after the teaching and went, Here's my question. I'm not a Jew. I don't have any Jewish blood. So I'm not part of that whole thing. How do I know God loves me? How do we know indeed? We start reading in Ephesians 1.13, which says, In Him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, along with those of Israel, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to our redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. And for the second time, Paul says that, to the praise of His glory, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. That's the message of of the messenger. The message of Malachi. The message of John the Baptist. But greater than either of these two messengers, that is the message of the real messenger. The sent one. Jesus Christ. You Bible students know back in Isaiah 5, God tells the parable of the vineyard. The vineyard is Israel. It's very clearly Israel. But in Matthew chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus comes along and He starts to retell it. And He recasts it. He says, a man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and then went on a journey. Everyone knew He was talking about the vineyard of Israel. 
And then Jesus starts to describe in this parable, and the man decided it was time to get some of the produce of his vineyard, so he sent some servants to the vineyard, and the people cut them off, drove them out. And Jesus said, so he sent more servants. And some were beaten, and some were killed. Jesus was talking about the prophets sent to Israel over all of those many, many years. Finally, Jesus says in Matthew 12, 6, God had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. Yet they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Jesus is both the messenger and the message. Jesus is the word of God spoken and the word of God sent. Don't shoot the messenger. Don't kill the messenger. He already died on the cross so that you might have eternal life. He made that choice so that you can make the choice to belong to Him. That the Lord be magnified. Let's pray together. Father, I so appreciate when You speak plainly. I love the the great prophecies and I love the stories and I love the parables, Lord. I love the mystery and the majesty of all of that. But Father, I am so appreciative to hear You say things like, I have loved You. I do love You. I will love You. I love to hear You say that You so love the world that You gave Your only begotten Son. I love when You speak clear and plain and simple to us. And I pray over the next coming weeks, Lord willing, that You will continue to speak plainly and simply to our hearts. Lord, speak to this fellowship at this time. And speak to each of us personally to know and embrace the truth of Your Word. Draw us, Father, back to the core message of the Gospel. And by the power of Your Spirit, help us live it out. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to stand up together. Rachel will lead us in a song. As we sing that song, if you'd like to respond to Jesus in any way, please come forward. Our prayer team will be on the right or the left side here to receive you. Any needs you have, come while we sing. Let's stand up together.